Experience the best in relaxation and entertainment with SolGood streaming at SolGood.org. Our extensive library features hundreds of audiobooks, thousands of short stories, original podcasts, and popular sounds for sleep, meditation, and relaxation all ad-free. Whether you want to escape into a good book or fall asleep to your favorite ambient sound, we have something for everyone. Go to SolGood.org to start streaming and discover your new go-to for entertainment and relaxation. That's S-O-L-G-O-O-D dot O-R-G. Experience the best in relaxation and entertainment with SolGood streaming at SolGood.org. Our extensive library features hundreds of audiobooks, thousands of short stories, original podcasts, and popular sounds for sleep, meditation, and relaxation all ad-free. Whether you want to escape into a good book or fall asleep to your favorite ambient sound, we have something for everyone. Go to SolGood.org to start streaming and discover your new go-to for entertainment and relaxation. That's S-O-L-G-O-O-D dot O-R-G. Chapter 22 The Battle of Elma General Drew had many spies in the enemy's camp, and some of these succeeded in crossing the lines each night in order to give him what information they had been able to gather. Some of these spies passed through the lines as late as eleven o'clock the night before the battle, and from them he learned that a general attack was to be made upon him the next day at six o'clock in the morning. As far as he could gather, and from his own knowledge of the situation, it was General Newton's purpose to break his center. The reason Newton had this in mind was that he thought Drew's line was far flung, and he believed that if he could drive through the center, he could then throw each wing into confusion and bring about a crushing defeat. As a matter of fact, Drew's line was not far flung, but he had a few troops strung out for many miles in order to deceive Newton, because he wanted him to try to break his center. Up to this time, he had taken no one into his confidence, but at midnight, he called his division commanders to his headquarters and told them his plan of battle. They were instructed not to impart any information to the commanders of brigades until two o'clock. The men were then to be aroused and given a hasty breakfast, after which they were to be ready to march by three o'clock. Recent arrivals had augmented his army to approximately 500,000 men. General Newton had, as far as he could learn, approximately 600,000, so there were more than a million of men facing one another. Drew had a twofold purpose in preparing at three in the morning. First, he wanted to take no chances upon General Newton's time of attack. His information as to six o'clock he thought reliable, but it might have been given out to deceive him and a much earlier engagement might be contemplated. His other reason was that he intended to flank Newton on both wings. It was his purpose to send, under cover of night, 125,000 men to the right of Newton and 125,000 to his left, and have them conceal themselves behind wooded hills until noon, and then to drive in on him from both sides. He was confident that with 250,000 determined men, protected by the fortifications he had been able to erect, and with the ground of his own choosing, which had a considerable elevation over the valley through which Newton would have to march, 
he could hold his position until noon. He did not count upon actual fighting before eight o'clock, or perhaps not before nine. Drew did not attempt to rest, but continued through the night to instruct his staff officers, and to arrange, as far as he could, for each contingency. Before two o'clock, he was satisfied with the situation and felt assured of victory. He was pleased to see the early morning hours develop a fog, for this would cover the march of his left and right wings, and they would not have to make so wide a detour in order that their movements might be concealed. It would also delay, he thought, Newton's attack. His army was up and alert at three, and by four o'clock those that were to hold the center were in position, though he had them lie down again on their arms, so that they might get every moment of rest. Three o'clock saw the troops that were to flank the enemy already on the march. At six-thirty his outposts reported Newton's army moving, but it was nine o'clock before they came within touch of his troops. In the meantime his men were resting, and he had food served them again as late as seven o'clock. Newton attacked the center viciously at first, but making no headway and seeing that his men were being terribly decimated, he made a detour to the right, and, with cavalry, infantry, and artillery, he drove Drew's troops in from the position which they were holding. Drew recognized the threatened danger and sent heliograph messages to his right and left wings to begin their attack, though it was now only eleven o'clock. He then rode in person to the point of danger, and rallied his men to a firmer stand, upon which Newton could make no headway. In that hell-storm of lead and steel Drew sat upon his horse unmoved. With bared head and eyes aflame, with face flushed and exultant, he looked the embodiment of the terrible god of war. His presence and his disregard of danger incited his soldiers to deeds of valor that would forever be an inspiration and a benediction to the race from which they sprung. Newton, seeing that his efforts were costing him too dearly, decided to withdraw his troops and rest until the next day, when he thought to attack Drew from the rear. The ground was more advantageous there, and he felt confident he could dislodge him. When he gave the command to retreat, he was surprised to find Drew massing his troops outside his entrenchments and preparing to follow him. He slowly retreated and Drew slowly followed. Newton wanted to get him well away from his stronghold and in the open plain, and then wheel and crush him. Drew was merely keeping within striking distance, so that when his two divisions got in touch with Newton, they would be able to attack him on three sides. Just as Newton was about to turn, Drew's two divisions poured down the slopes of the hills on both sides and began to charge. And when Drew's center began to charge, it was only a matter of moments before Newton's army was in a panic. He tried to rally them and to face the oncoming enemy, but his efforts were in vain. His men threw down their guns, some surrendering, but most of them fleeing in the only way open, that towards the rear and the lake. Drew's soldiers saw that victory was theirs, and, maddened by the lust of war, they drove the government forces back, 
killing and crushing the seething and helpless mass that was now in hopeless confusion. Orders were given by General Drew to push on and follow the enemy until nightfall, or until the lake was reached, where they must surrender or drown. By six o'clock of that fateful day, the splendid army of Newton was a thing for pity, for Drew had determined to exhaust the last drop of strength of his men to make the victory complete and the battle conclusive. At the same time, as far as he was able, he restrained his men from killing, for he saw that the enemy were without arms and thinking only of escape. His order was only partially obeyed, for when man is in conflict with either beast or fellow man, the primitive lust for blood comes to the fore, and the gentlest and most humane are oftentimes the most bloodthirsty. Of the enemy, 40,000 were dead and 210,000 were wounded, with 75,000 missing. Of prisoners, Drew had captured 375,000. General Newton was killed in the early afternoon, soon after the rout began. Phillips' casualties were 23,000 dead and 110,000 wounded. It was a holocaust, but the war was indeed ended. End of chapter 22